Hi everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And this is Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and review them by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to get the best and most relevant information we can. For sure. I hope everybody had a fun and safe Halloween. Yes, I know we did. Yeah, we sure did. Uh, My older son was a hot dog. (laughs) And our younger son was a pirate wearing a costume that my mother bought him at Costco many months ago. Was very popular and still fit. Yes, I'm very thankful for that. So we had a really nice time and I hope that you all did too. If anyone out there had any cool like animal costumes or anything like that you want to show off, please do send them our way. Mm-hmm. I love seeing stuff like that. Yeah, love those uh, steal their look type things. <laughs> I believe it's my turn to go first this week. Yeah, what do you got? This week I'm talking about the stoat. Stoat? Stoat. All right. You know what a stoat is? It's a mammal. Great. Okay. All right. How much farther can you narrow it down than that? <laughs> is it? A weasel? Yeah, it is. All right. Yeah, they're also known as the ermine, if you've ever heard that word. I haven't heard that, but I like it. Um, The scientific name is Mastella erminia. Mm -hmm. This species was submitted by Alyssa, Scout, and Lynn, all within days of each other. (laughs) A concerted effort or coincidence? (laughs) It was, there is something going on right now that I will talk Ah. about in a little bit that has people thinking about stoats at the moment. Got it. You know what? There's no need for me to be suspenseful about that. (laughs) It's Dimension 20. Uh, The new season of Dimension 20 started recently. Dimension 20 is an actual play, Dungeons and Dragons. It's like a video series Mm -hmm. hosted on Dropout, which we just so happen to already have a subscription to. (laughs) Yes. I promise uh, we're not affiliated with them or advertising for them. We just happen to already have it. The new season is DM'd by Abria Iyengar. Very talented. And this new season of Dimension 20 is, they're all stoats. All of their characters are stoats. So was this on purpose or did they all have options and they all happened to pick the same one? That would be hilarious. But no, <laughs> this was intentional. They okay. set out. The setting is populated entirely by stoats. Ah. Yeah. So that's why people are thinking about them at the moment. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. And I'm getting my information from the Mammal Society, Woodland Trust, and the New Zealand Department of Conservation. Now, if for those of you unfamiliar with stoats... Like Christian said, they are a type of weasel. So think little skinny guy. Um, If you took a cat and a snake and mixed them together, this is what you would get. A very slinky, long, slender looking guy. They're about a foot long. They're only about uh, 30 centimeters Mm -hmm. long. They're native to northern regions of Europe, Asia, and North America. Oh. You'll note that I didn't include New Zealand. (laughs) We've had this happen a couple times. Yes, uh, they are found outside of their native range now. I will I will talk about that at length later. To great environmental detriment, mm, they are found mm-hmm. elsewhere. But a lot of the information I found was kind of specific to stoats in the UK because they're just very common little dudes out mm. there. They're sneaky, so like you don't see them all the time, but they're there. Okay. Like we mentioned, they belong to the family of weasels, which are mustelids. Their closest cousins would be things like the least weasel and ferrets, but then the mustelid family in general also includes things like otters and wolverines and badgers. Mm. So the long guys, the the hot dog style mammals. But also notably carnivores, right? They're vicious. Yes. Bloodthirsty. (laughs) Like among the cutest carnivores for sure. Like with cuteness directly correlated 
to absolute ravenous hunger mm-hmm. for blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these are no exception. <laughs> if this is your first time listening to this podcast, we rate animals out of 10. The first category is effectiveness. These are physical adaptations, things built into the animal's body that let it do a good job of the things that it is trying to do. And I think I'm going to give the stoat uh, an 8 out of 10. I sensed and heard some hesitancy there. I mean, you know, it's just that they're little. Yeah. And there's, they have such a big appetite, and they're so little for it. <laughs> the, so, the mean gets concentrated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the shorter the legs, the closer to hell. We can't use that. <laughs> what? We can't use that. I sure can, and I will. <laughs> Their uh, skinny little shape helps them squeeze into narrow burrows to chase small prey. Uh, so if they are chasing after something like a little, I don't know, like a mouse or something like that, it might burrow, they can follow them underground and into tight spaces. So great for chasing small things. It also lets them make use of those burrows and tight spaces for their dens. In fact, in I watched the first episode of the Dimension 20 campaign, and the setting is in this rabbit warren that stoats have taken over and like have a family den in this rabbit warren, which is very consistent with stoat behavior. That is what they do, right? A rabbit might have a a den that it has dug out for Mm -hmm, itself, mm -hmm. and then stoats will chase them out or just eat them. I was going to say, like... Not necessarily chase them out. I mean, the rabbit can leave if it wants, if if it can, but... (laughs) But this is not a harmonious type of situation. No, no, no. no. By whatever means, the rabbit is removed from residence of its burrow, (laughs) and the stoats will take over. Now, anyone who has ever tried to hold a ferret will tell you that animals like this are kind of liquidy. Mm -hmm. It's like trying to hold like slime or something, right? They just sock full of jelly. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) or those those little squeezy jelly things that, like, as a kid, you'd have this little toy that's like a little squeezy thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like Mm -hmm. holding one of those. They just slip right out of your fingers. That's exactly what they do. They can slip out into or out of any sort of situation that they might get themselves into. So it's great for stuff like that. They also uh, they're bendy and flexible. So they can fall from great heights (laughs) and not necessarily (laughs) take tons of fall damage. They also have short legs and a long tail that gives them amazing balance. So they're great for walking across things like tree branches, fences, things Mm. like that. Low center of gravity, right? And a long tail gives them good balance. They're also good swimmers, which will come into play in a little while. With those little legs. But also being low to the ground helps them crouch below grass to sneak up on prey that's mm-hmm. also low mm-hmm. to the ground. Their favorite prey is rabbits. Yeah. They love to eat rabbits, which is interesting because rabbits are much bigger than stoats. They're significantly larger. Mm-hmm. But stoats are able to sneak up on them in the grass because they're so little. Now, what a lot of people know about stoats is that their fur dramatically changes color seasonally. Hmm. So in warmer months, they're brown with a white underbelly, but during the winter, they turn completely white. Oh, Yeah, this is something that a lot of different weasels do. You can tell if it's a stoat if the tip of the tail stays black year-round. They have a black tail tip that stays Hmm. black all the time, even when the rest of their body is white. Their okay. tail stays black. Okay. So if you're if you're wondering, just watch it for about a year. <laughs> and then you'll know. I think that 
the black tail tip is a is just a stoat thing. Okay. So like if you just if you see one and you see the tip of the tail is black. And the reason for that is kind of interesting kind of thought that the tip of the tail is black to serve as a distraction for predators. Mm. So something like a bird of prey or a fox or something like that is trying to hunt a stoat, they might be distracted by the black tip of the tail and go for that. And then, you know, you can take damage to your tail. It's not going to hurt the rest of you. Or they just take a chunk of fur out or something like that. Or you're kind of banking on them, not aiming for where you'll be. Right. And then they'll miss entirely because that's the very end of you relative to your movement. I don't think that's anything that's been confirmed. I just saw that kind of like floating around as a a suggestion. It seemed pretty interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the word ermine is used to refer to the stoat in their winter coat. So when they're white... They're called an ermine. Oh. And when they're brown, they're called a stoat. I see. Yeah. A little bit of a frustrating thing about the English language. But, and <laughs> people kind of use the term interchangeably, especially, I think, in the United States. Like, either one. Now, did it perhaps originate from a time before they realized they weren't the same animal? I couldn't really find a timeline of that, but I know that is a thing. Yeah. Sometimes we're like... In history, people didn't always know that, like, different forms were just the same animal at different times of year. So, like, they may have just thought it was a completely different species, Uh right? Yeah, I don't really know what the timeline is of that etymology. I just thought it was... It would line up with other English instances of that. They love doing that. Now, the next category we rate animals on is ingenuity, which is behavioral adaptations, ways that the animal can solve problems that it faces or figure stuff out. I'm going to give them a 9 out of 10, mostly because... I'm a little bit experienced with other types of like closely related mustelids and I know them to be extremely clever Mm -hmm. and I don't have any reason to believe that the stoat is any less so like other types of weasels. They are cold blooded killers. A hundred percent of the brain power is dedicated to just Mm -hmm. murder and mayhem. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned that they eat rabbits, which are much larger than them. They kill their prey with a single bite to the back of the neck. Hmm. That's stone cold, isn't it? Similar to the jaguar. Yeah. It's if you just scaled a jaguar down really tiny. (laughs) (laughs) They're kind of using brains over brawn, I think. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. And now, this is probably my favorite thing about stoats. When hunting rabbits, stoats may opt to abandon stealth altogether in favor of a different tactic. Mm Mm-hmm. The old (laughs) razzle-dazzle. The stoat may begin jumping, spinning, twirling, rolling over on its back, and kicking its feet in the air. The rabbit becomes confused by Mm -hmm. the stoat's behavior and just watches, mesmerized. Is like, what am I looking at? (laughs) What is happening? What is this? And while this is happening, the stoat is kind of tumbling around and gradually getting closer and closer and closer and closing the distance while the rabbit is like trying to figure out what it's even looking at. Mm -hmm. And then once the stoat is close enough, it snaps out of it and then lunges and and kills the rabbit. Dang. It which is like when you fail your stealth check, so you opt for performance yeah. instead. <laughs> Anyone who's ever played a bard has tried this. <laughs> so this behavior can be seen in other types of weasels, and it is called the weasel war dance. Huh. Which I 
only call it that because there is an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to it. Wow. So go on wikipedia.com.org. I don't remember which one it is. But go on Wikipedia. You type in Weasel War Dance, and it's right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny that this is like a common enough thing. And I think that people that have like pet ferrets have probably seen this, right? You, they accordion up, and they like slinky their back up in the air. You mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about? And mm-hmm. they just kind of like... Go berserk for a second. <laughs> it's amazing. It's my favorite thing ever. I love would, that they it do it. It would work on me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how do I respond to this? Like, you know, because a lot of animals have like instincts that are based on like the behavior that they see in other animals, <laughs> right? Like some predators will have a prey drive that's activated yeah. if they see something acting in the way they expect their prey to act. Yeah. I wonder if this is just like short circuiting that like. Well, surely this can't be a predator. (laughs) (laughs) Everything inside is telling me to run, but I am curious. (laughs) I do want to see how this plays out. (laughs) I don't want to let this one ride. (laughs) Hilarious. And this brings us to aesthetics, the final category that we rate animals on. Just how nice this animal is to look at. I'm giving it full points, 10 out of 10. It's so cute. I mean, I kept getting distracted while doing my notes because yeah. I was just scrolling through pictures of how cute they are. The, how can you stay mad at that little face? Like, there are so many pictures of them, like, holding fresh kills <laughs> holding like mangled corpses of like birds and rabbits and stuff like that but they look so cute i like i can't i can't be scared of you you're so cute <laughs> now which uh which form do you prefer it's all good yeah. like both of them are great i really don't have a preference one way or the other i do like when they're brown i do like the like brown on top white on the bottom mm-hmm. i like that that's very cute it's very toy like it does it feels like a little toy they're just so sweet <laughs> oh and while i was uh, researching i did find a painting by leonardo da vinci titled lady with an ermine and that was from 1490 and it is a beautiful painting is a lot of times you run into this p- problem with like renaissance or mm-hmm. medieval paintings where they don't know what they're doing when they're trying to like make an animal right because they didn't have references right if you weren't standing there looking at the actual animal you had no way to know like what it actually looked like right you're doing your best i can't fault them for that but this is a real stunner like he nailed it he did great with this one i would hope so you know man famous for drawing <laughs> helicopters and stuff <laughs> he's not famous for drawing stoats <laughs> now in this painting of the stoat is the stoat alive or being worn as it is alive and it is sitting in her lap oh and it's actually very very you know what? i'll show it to you hold on thank you oh yeah i've seen this one is this an animal crossing Oh, is it? That's one of the paintings you can get. Yo, <laughs> when I look at the suggested search terms in Google, it says Lady with an Ermine Museum, Lady with an Ermine, A-C-N-H. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, apparently it is. Okay. I didn't know that. But yeah, it is in, it is in Animal Crossing. That's a good eye. You know what? You did more of the art collecting in Animal Crossing than I did. A little bit. Yeah. yeah so, but yes, excellent art identification. I did it. You nailed it. <laughs> and to wrap things up for the stoat, its conservation status is of least concern. I would go so far as to say it's the opposite. So let's talk about New Zealand. Okay, I was hoping for yes. this. Yes. In the 1830s, British people in New Zealand began releasing rabbits onto the South Island of mm-hmm. New Zealand. 
The idea here, I think, is that they were supposed to be, like, hunted for game. They were supposed to have them around as food. So they just, like, released them in the hopes that they would just kind of establish a population and then they could just hunt them for food. This quickly became a problem, as it tends to, (laughs) since there were no natural predators on the entire island to keep their numbers in check, right? Mm -hmm. New Zealand is known for not having, like, any large predators on the island, especially not, like, something that would take down a rabbit. So... Their numbers boomed. Yes. There were so many rabbits. Rabbits are famous. You, the breeding like rabbits, right? Like that, That's what you say. <laughs> Maybe this is the reason for them. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you say when there's too many of something. <laughs> so yeah, that happened. And by the 1870s, the island was overrun with rabbits who were decimating vegetation. Mm-hmm. So grasses and shrubs were totally wiped out, which in turn left the soil overexposed. And then wind and rain eroded the soil so that new plants couldn't grow. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just that they were eating too much grass. It was like they were eating too much grass, ruining the soil, can't grow new grass. It was just absolutely wrecking the ecosystem Mm -hmm. of the South Island of New Zealand. So the rabbits were choking the island. So what did they do about it? They released rabbit assassins. Okay. Stoats. In droves. (laughs) They just rounded them up. Not only stoats, like other types of weasels too, but they knew stoats and weasels to specialize in rabbits. So like, we got too many rabbits, release the stoats. Mm -hmm, Let's see what they mm -hmm, can do. mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that is that while stoats certainly do like to eat rabbits, they like to eat other stuff too. They don't only eat rabbits. And turns out New Zealand just so happened to be home to many species of flightless and ground-nesting birds. Yeah. Birds that were not used to or adapted to predators on the ground like that. That just wasn't something they'd ever needed to think about. They wouldn't even run, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't even know what they were looking at. They'd be like, I don't know what this is. I don't know if I need to be scared of it. They just weren't used to that sort of thing. They weren't adapted to it. So they were very easy pickings for stoats. So stoats ended up eating mostly birds. They didn't eat that many rabbits. Turns out the the birds were way easier for them to eat. So they ate the birds instead, left the rabbits alone. Now you got two problems. Probably the eggs too, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Like absolutely decimated the eggs and the, the nests and the birds and everything. So did not solve the rabbit problem. And in fact, introduced a second problem. Hmm. Well, a third problem, if you count the overabundance of stoats and the extinction of birds as two separate problems, right? Sure. So now you started with one problem, now you got three. So according to the New Zealand government's website, the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, and this is a quote, they said, together with rats and cats, stoats have contributed to the extinction of huia, bush wrens, native thrushes, laughing owls, and quails. They also exterminated stitch birds, saddlebacks, kakapo, and little spotted kiwi from the mainland. So that thing I mentioned earlier about how stoats are actually really good swimmers, stoats Mm. started swimming to other islands. Like, you start to see stoat populations pop up on other islands. Right. And then they would eradicate those populations, and they'd show back up. Mm -hmm. Like, they'd jump back across. Like, you couldn't keep them eradicated because they'd just keep island hopping. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I have to say, if you're a stoat, like, wow, that's impressive. Like, that is a physically impressive feat. Because those islands are not, like, right up against each other, right? That is a considerable amount of distance you have to close. And and if there was a predator they had to deal with, that's where they'll be. Yes, (laughs) The, the, that gap in between the islands is much scarier. <laughs> There's still a problem. I think New Zealand is still trying to deal with invasive weasels. So big problem there. Yeah. 
I did want to kind of circle back to Dimension 20 because I thought it was really cute. Like, it's a cute idea. They didn't say why they chose stoats for their, like, campaign. Mm. I, I, if there is a, a reason out there, I'm sorry I didn't catch it. I just watched the first episode on Dropout. I did only have one minor sort of, like, <laughs> I guess, well, actually moment. Okay. And that is that in Dimension 20, the whole, like, set, I mean, it's D&D, right? It's a party-based, like, role-playing game, yeah. right? You're going to have a group of players together that are, like, cooperating and solving problems together. Mm-hmm. So in the setting of the campaign, all of these stoats are, like, a family, but, like, a large community. It's, like, a town, almost, that they, like, work together and support each other. And, you know, they stash food, which stoats really do, but, like, share food with each other stoats do not do that stoats are solitary they're territorial they will like have a den for their offspring but they don't do this like multi-generational or like extended family unit like which is probably for the best i was just thinking the only way this could get worse is if they started doing pack tactics like velociraptors or something oh my gosh can you imagine (laughs) they would be unstoppable like if you were just getting overrun by stoats oh my lord they could do the war dancing with one and then (gasps) the other is sneaking around behind there you go see you could have a bait and switch sort of situation now i i would probably chalk up their decision to make them communal to just be narrative yes yes it makes more sense it does and it's a more engaging and interesting story like if they were gonna be super true to stoat behavior there would have to be a lot more pvp (laughs) it's just all lone wolves all of them it would have to be like a very sort of competitive game (laughs) where like everyone's trying to like win over the other um yeah stoats are not as friendly with each other so question about dimension 20 have they mentioned how to visualize them walking are they bipedal in this or i think they're bipedal because there's like little illustrations of the different characters that show up on the screen when they like introduce them and they seem to be sort of bipedal in some moments i bet that's pretty cute it's pretty cute yeah i like the way that they like role play them it's very cute and it's very thoughtful too like there's like moments where they think like their little paws Mm -hmm. it is it's very cute and i really enjoyed it i also just like really like the cast of dimension 20 they're all Mm -hmm. Excellent storytellers and very funny comedians, and and a, it's a fun thing to watch. So that was my only well, actually, is that like stoats don't group up like that. You wouldn't have like a traveling party of stoats. They, they're not cool like that. <laughs> well, that's how D and D goes. It's a yeah. constant balance between immersion and fun. They would all be chaotic evil. Every <laughs> single one of them should be chaotic evil. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> and that's stoats. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to folks who brought that to my attention. I was happy to have the the heads up that Dimension 20 was doing a stoat-themed campaign. And it made for a cool uh, little research rabbit hole for me. A rabbit hole that has now been <laughs> overrun <laughs> and taken over by stoats. Yes. Uh, let's hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then let's get to Christian's Animal. Oh my gosh, hi. It's me, Dave Holmes, host of the pop culture game show Troubled Waters. On Troubled Waters, we play a whole host of games, like one where I describe a show using Limerick, and our guests have to figure out what it is. Let's do one right now. What show am I talking about? This podcast has game after game, and brilliant guests who come play them. The host is named Dave. It could be your fave. So try it. Life won't be the same. Uh, a Big Business starring Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. Close, but no. Oh, Is it Troubled Waters, the pop culture quiz show with all your favorite comedians? Yes! Troubled Waters is the answer. 
to this question and all of my life's problems. Now, legally, we actually can't guarantee that, but you can find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Cruciola, host of Feeling Seen, where we start by asking our guests just one question. What movie character made you feel seen? I knew exactly what it was. Clementine from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Joy Wang slash Shabutupaki. That one question launches amazing conversations about their lives, the movies they love, and about the past, present, and future of entertainment. Roy in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I worry about what this might say about me, but I've brought Tracy Flick in the film Election. So if you like movies, diverse perspectives, and great conversations, check us out. Oof, this is real. New episodes of Feeling Seen drop every week on MaximumFun.org. So Christian, what animal do you have for us this week? I'm bringing another small one. Hmm, small wonder. Yeah. <laughs> this one is called Barrel Eye. I'm so excited for this. Yes. So you are already aware of it, but for those at home that are not, the Barrel Eye is a kind of fish. And the scientific name is Macropinna microstoma, which translates to great thorn, small mouth. I love that. <laughs> great thorn, small mouth. That feels like proverbial almost. I thought that exactly. It feels a lot like... Walk softly, carry a big yes, stick. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Speak softly, carry a big thorn. <laughs> um, now, this species was submitted by Alice Winter and Chelsea Shepard. Thank you. Thank you. I'm getting my information from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Mabari, which is the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, mm. and as well as the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Oh, nice. Yeah. Local, represent. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned uh, they're a little one, and they are a fish. They grow up to be about six inches long, or 15 centimeters. That's not that big. Now, I did not realize how small these things were until right. we played... Animal Crossing. Right. <laughs> because at one point, there's a you can catch one. Mm -hmm. And they give you a good idea of how big they are, relative to other fish, at least. Right. And it was surprisingly very small. And when you see pictures of this fish, there's never anything nearby you can compare it to. Correct. Because every picture is going to be in deep water and nowhere near, like, reefs or the bottom or anything else, for that matter. Right. There's, like, the nearest life form is, like, 30 miles away. Sure. Like, you're, there's not going to be anything around for scale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the human mind does what it does and fills <laughs> in the blanks. I assume that if deep water, then giant monster. <laughs> right. And there's a lot to kind of process in those pictures and videos, mm -hmm. as I'll touch yeah, on. Yeah, you're already in the, like, <laughs> what am I looking at? Sort of like, your mind's already having to put in overtime, just right. like perceiving of this thing. Yep. It's very eldritch, sort of incomprehensible horrors. Yeah. So we mentioned deep sea. They can be found in 2,000 to 2,600 feet deep water or 600 to 800 meters in the northeastern Pacific Ocean, um, including off the shore of... Monterey Bay, California. Nice. Yes. We could have seen one. Let's just pop out there to the deep sea. Google Maps says go down for 2,000 feet. <laughs> Turn on walking directions. Yeah. Uh, they belong to the taxonomic family Apistoproctidae, which is the barrel eyes or spookfish. You did so good saying that. Yay. That was great. That's the only time, though. Hope, hope the recording <laughs> caught it. Uh, not to be confused with Chimera. 
which are also sometimes called spookfish. Oh, I see. Yes. Oh, this is very seasonally appropriate. <laughs> Spooky. Yeah, just missed it. Uh, there are other animals called barrel eyes that they're related to, but this one is special. <laughs> <laughs> this is the cool one. Yeah. Jumping right into it for effectiveness, I'm giving a 9 out of 10. Ooh. And the thing that they have that is common among the other barrel eye fish are tubular eyes. Tell me about this. This is wild. So imagine a cylinder with a semi-sphere at the end of it. Okay. I've got it in my head. That's what their eyes look like. Love that. (laughs) Love that. Now, what's interesting about those eyes is... Oftentimes, they're pointed directly up uh-huh. relative to how you would imagine a fish to be oriented. At a 90 degree angle with the rest of the yes. body. Oh, you could say they're dorsally oriented. Yes. Pointing towards the dorsal side of the fish. Yes, versus uh, rostrally. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Look at you. Yeah. I, there's no real way to talk about this without talking about my next point. Their eyes are encased in a completely transparent dome it's like a astronaut helmet style yeah yeah it's really weird so i'll touch more about that dome in a moment but the idea is these eyes are completely encased in this dome Mm -hmm. that is transparent so they're looking through basically their forehead yeah it's almost like their eyes are like sunk into their head but their whole head is like a visor like a bubble yeah, and another way to, th- to think about it anatomically is they have a normal fish head. Uh-huh. Because, like, the skull is, you know, very sunken and underneath their eyes and behind their eyes. Mm. And then it's like a fleshy ad- adaptation has developed to bulge out like a forehead from there that encases their eyes entirely. But it's totally transparent. Yeah, and fluid-filled. Ooh. <laughs> I guess that's better than the alternative. It ha- kind of has to be at those right. depths. Because it, it couldn't be air because at a depth like that, it would pop. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's in this transparent dome. Now, that's the part that makes them pretty special is this transparent dome. And these eyes, they thought, were stuck in a position pointing up. But... Oh, oh. and that's not the case. It is not. Oh, no. <laughs> in 2008, Mubari found out they can rotate. Oh. And point forward. I guess that's super <laughs> useful, right? <laughs> yes. Now, the title of the paper that's about this is Macropinna Microstoma and the Paradox of Its Tubular Eyes. The Paradox of Its Tubular Eyes. And that's by Robeson and Reisenbickler, published in Copia in 2008. What did they mean by paradox? Because it was odd that having eyes that aren't oriented with the mouth, mm. right? Because if their eyes were stuck pointing up, that means when they go in to bite, they have now lost vision of the thing they're trying to bite. That's true. Yeah, it does kind of <laughs> give you a pretty static blind spot. Yeah. And a considerable blind spot, too. Yes. So uh, until this research was done using robotic vehicles and submersibles uh, filming these things, and prior to that, they thought the eyes were stuck in an up position. Right. And then they saw it for themselves where that's not the case. Mm. They actually were able to pull up one or two specimens to the boat that they were on into an aquarium and observe them that way as well. Really? And what's interesting about these creatures is oftentimes when they are captured in things like nets and things, that dome does not survive the the process. Oh, really? What happens to it? (laughs) It it collapses, basically, uh, because of the pressure change or because of being handled by the nets like that. Like a blobfish. Like yeah. How just like, bleh, like Well, yes, but there's also the p- potential of it being popped like a balloon. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> 
I, I was going to say, like, that seems like you wouldn't want that to be right in the front of your face, because then what if you run into something that pops it? But, like, where they live, how often are you going to run into something? <laughs> yeah. And there's another reason they probably wouldn't run into something in normal condition, because those eyes are very good at collecting light. Really? Yes. It helps them with contrast perception and death perception due to the large binocular overlap. I thought you said death perception. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when, as a child, my death perception kicked in. (laughs) Corpse spotted. (laughs) (laughs) But no, their eyes being tubes, you can think of them as binoculars, like Mm. actual binoculars in that way too, because that's how they're oriented with each other. Um, So they have very good binocular vision, but it's... A very specific range with what they're looking at. This is very owl-like. A little this bit, This is yeah. giving owl a little, a little bit. bit. Except in the way that owl's eyes don't move inside their skull. Oh. These move a lot. So they actually have something up on owls. Maybe <laughs> owls could, should be taking notes, I think. <laughs> yeah. And you'll notice in pictures of these guys that the lens part of their eyes, the, the half sphere, glows a bright green. Oh, it glows. Is that like an actual glow or is that like reflecting off of... I think it's a reflection. It must be, right? But every picture I've seen was with light, so... So I'm wondering if that's just like the membrane that's like reflecting light. Like how like eye shine, you get eye shine from like nocturnal animals. Well, maybe this will help since you know more about this than I do. But this color comes from yellow pigmentation in the eyes. Mm. And that's like that likely helps it filter out sunlight in a a way that helps it spot prey in the depths. Oh, interesting. Because you would think that being in a place where like there's not that much sunlight, you'd want to be maximizing the amount of sunlight you're taking in. It's the light it's taking in, but I think it's the color spectrum that perhaps it's Mm. lowering because what it's doing a lot of time is down deep looking straight up it's looking for silhouettes oh it's looking for shadows yeah oh okay so it's not really looking for color anyway it's just trying to look for like Mm -hmm. where where the most contrast between the light and the shadow is yep that's where that contrast perception comes in oh that's so cool and that makes sense that they'd be looking up for that Mm -hmm. because if there is light making it down there which is not much that would be the way you would see something in front of it more about that eye dome. It protects their eyes. That's kind of one of the main purposes of it. Is it protects their eyes from the things they hunt, which is primarily jellies. Oh, that makes sense. These poor jellyfish <laughs> can't catch a break. But particularly for the very large siphonophores that oh, are in this area. Wow. And the things that they're eating. And the things that the siphonophores are eating? Yes. So siphonophores or large jellies like this capture other animals in their stinging tentacles, right? Right. So what these guys are doing is they come along, find the siphonophores, and pick out the the prey that they've captured. (gasps) Rude! Thief! (laughs) That also means they're eating a little bit of siphonophore when they're doing this. Take it, sure, yeah. (laughs) But they're they're nabbing the little bits of things that they... Because yeah. siphonophores and other like soft bodied like jellies and stuff like that, they don't cast much of a shadow, right? <laughs> like there's not a lot to block the light. Not a lot of contrast happening here. But you would see the things that they've caught pretty quickly. That's true. Yeah, you would see the, the little lumps of stuff. So yeah. when a snake eats a meal and you can see the lump moving through its mm. body, I guess you would, if they're completely see-through, you just still see the prey in there. Mm. And if you look at a picture of these things, you'll notice they have a very small mouth. It's very small. And that's really the limiting factor on the size of the things that they can eat. (laughs) But it sounds like they're eating things that are soft enough that they could just like (laughs) like slurp it right up. (laughs) 
it's like how a sunfish, right? Like sunfish being like this massive, huge animal that has like a tiny, tiny little mouth because all they eat is little jellyfish that they can just slurp up like a like like a jello shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So another thing that dome allows it allows the maximum amount of light from most directions to reach their eyeballs. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. You wouldn't want your eyes to be encased in something that's going to block the light that could be reaching it. Yeah. I mean, it kind of mimics like the shape that a lot of our like submersibles take, right? Like, yeah, for sure. When you have like a, like a research vessel or like a submersible machinery, a lot of times that front dome will be not glass. I think we usually do glass for for a dome. Um, Like plexiglass, that kind of thing. Yeah. Not, not epoxy, but that family of materials. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So to talk more about their rotating eyes, a quote from that paper I mentioned reads, When we positioned this fish horizontally in an aquarium, its eyes were directed upward toward the top of the tank. When we rotated the fish into a head-up vertical position, its eyes continued to look upward, although they were directed forward relative to its body. Oh, like a gyroscope almost. Oh, it's like (laughs) like a, what do you call it? Um... It's not a gimli gimbal. Is that what? A gimbal. I don't know what either of these things are. Oh, oh, well, I know what gimli is, but <laughs> I keep typing gumball by accident, and I'm trying to tell you what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's a gimbal stabilizer. One of these sure. things that like keeps the camera like yeah. when when you're moving around a lot. They use it for like documentary footage and stuff like that. It's like something you wear on your body that lets you move around while stabilizing the camera. Yeah, yeah. So the camera is always in the same spot, like pointing in the same exact direction, no matter what way your body's facing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a Gimli machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's not it. Nope. <laughs> Gimbal. Now my biggest disappointment. As I was unable to find video of seeing the eyes rotate. That would be really cool. Whoever's gatekeeping that, stop it. <laughs> Plenty of pictures of before and after of it moving. But mm. I, I, it's the transition that I know will evoke a little bit of body horror. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah, it would be creepy to see. But also very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, they also have these big kind of broad fins that are very good for precision movements. Really? Yeah. That helps a lot, right, when they find a siphonophore and are being very careful about navigating the stinging cells. Oh, true. That that, and also you wouldn't want to, like, move too fast because if you create, like, current around you, you're going to blow them away. Yeah. Yeah. True. Very delicate operation it must be Mm -hmm. to try to eat a siphonophore. (laughs) Moving on to ingenuity. I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Very nice. I find the overall hunting strategy pretty impressive. Honestly, if you know that like your prey has a weakness and that it has no brain or means of moving. (laughs) Yes. So just to kind of reiterate what we've already talked about, they're looking up to look for silhouettes of their prey as well as bioluminescent prey. uh, Because some of these jellies and siphonophores are bioluminescent, which Mm -hmm. means they produce their own light as opposed to biofluorescent. Seems like a terrible idea. (laughs) There's a giant neon sign. Free food. (laughs) Something. Some, some some things use that to their advantage, though. Yeah. <laughs> and they're able to carefully navigate the stinging cells to get at the captured prey. Looking for the top, the eyes are protected from the stinging cells. I'll move ahead to aesthetics before I talk about this next piece. Okay. Aesthetics, I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Small face, very cute. Is it? <laughs> I think it's charming a you little bit. You do? Uh, the bright green islands are neat. Now, dear listener, you you <laughs> might be having the same problem I had. Which is wrapping my mind around the anatomy a little bit. Yeah. Because there's one part that it took a while 
to get past. Okay. Some pictures you'll see these what look like regular external eyes uh-huh. positioned above their mouth. Okay. In addition to the big eyeballs that are inside their head. Oh. Right. All right. The the things are on the outside, not eyes. Oh no, Mm-mm. they're fake. <laughs> they are basically nostrils. Oh. <laughs> but they look just like <laughs> eyes. Let me, let me pull up a picture real quick. Yeah, I would love that. It's probably going to be one of the first pictures you see if you Google barrel eye. Okay, it does look like eyes. It does. It does look like spooky little eyes. Which is confusing. Like, be- why, why would they need those, right? And the mouth right underneath it makes it look like eyes over a little beak. Yes. It makes it look like a little, like, ducky or something. Yeah. So <laughs> it took a while for me to get past that mental block. Right. <laughs> saying, like, no, those aren't eyes. They're not eyes. It looks like a face. <laughs> it, it's it does. creepy. Yeah, which is, you know, human recognition thing, whatever. <laughs> we love pattern recognition. <laughs> But because uh, I guess when I first saw this, what I thought was happening was, I, I don't know, maybe they're, they're, those are holes that the eyes look through. I don't oh, know. But no, see. those are basically nostrils. Oh, Pokemon <laughs> designs have this problem a lot. There are like Pokemon designs where it won't be until like years later that people realize that what they thought was its eyes all along mm-hmm. was actually like its nose or something. I think... Um, I think Armaldo is one. Yeah, I'm pulling up a picture. Armaldo is one where people thought that the red spots on top of its head oh, yeah. was its eyes. It's not. <laughs> but they would be way cooler. Yeah, I feel like we talked about this before. Probably. Because false eyes seem to be pretty popular with animals sometimes. Yeah. It doesn't seem like this is a, like a false eye situation. No, this it's is just, just... <laughs> a, a me as a human problem, I think. <laughs> User error. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at something that was never meant to be viewed by humans. I mean. That's true. We were never meant to see this stuff. This was not... This is none of our business. <laughs> uh so getting into the, you know the end pieces here, conservation status wise, it was not able to find anything. It has not never been, are ha- yeah deep sea stuff. And they just they just haven't been assessed for the most part. I mean, we've seen what probably a couple dozen of these things total it's, ever it's in like human history. Yeah, little fun fact I came across: one of the research vessels used by Mabari. I don't know if that's how it's said, by the way. I don't know Mabari. I don't know. So one of those vessels for that work was called. Point Lobos, which I assume was named after the Point Lobos State Natural Reserve in California mm. um, that we visited as part of our trip to the Monterey Bay yes, last I've, summer. I've been there. Yeah. I know him. I know Point Lobos. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. Yes. It is gorgeous. And not that far from Monterey Bay. Right, right. So if you're in Monterey Bay already, you can mm. just pop on down to Point Lobos. It's so beautiful. Yep. Big fan. That's exciting. I like when like I recognize a name. Yes. <laughs> Big moment for me. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, and that's the barrel eye. Thank you so much. I am really glad that you took this on because deep sea creatures can be difficult to do for this show because mm-hmm. often so little is kind of known about them that it can be kind of hard to make an entire segment out of a deep sea animal. But My advice always is take the thing that makes you most uncomfortable. <laughs> And just really dig into that. Just lean into the discomfort. Yeah. <laughs> but that's usually like where the interesting stuff is, yeah. right? Like that's the stuff that is like, it's spooky because it's unfamiliar. You have an opportunity to learn about it. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think that's cool. You did a great job. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>
(laughs) And thank you, dear listener, for spending this time with us. I really appreciate you. And we appreciate everybody who's been leaving kind words for us in the reviews on their podcast apps. We read those and we love them and they keep us motivated and happy. They mean the world to us. And if you want to come hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Discord, stuff like that. I'll have links to everything in the episode description so you can come check those out. We would like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their wonderful shows. So you can go check those out, learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. And finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. Here it comes. Get ready. Right now. Yep. (laughs) Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.